You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 28, 2024. I'm Kira from Drake University. Here is our first story. House GOP Rejects Blood Donor Bill. Bill Sought to Protect Direct Blood Donations by Aaron Murphy. In the picture, phlebotomist Keely Schuerman prepares to make an injection on volunteer Tiffany Shaw's arm during an American Red Cross blood drive sponsored by the Abraham Lincoln High School Student Council at New Horizon Presbyterian Church on December 28, 2023. A proposal to require hospitals and blood banks to comply with all patients' requests for blood donations from a specific donor was squashed Tuesday by Republican state lawmakers in the Iowa House. The bill would have required hospitals and blood banks to honor any blood transfusion patient's request for a blood donation from a known donor, like a family member, unless there was an imminent risk to the patient's life. Medical organizations and blood banks were uniformly opposed to the proposal, saying it would endanger patients' health and create logistical problems for blood banks. The legislative proposal recently passed the Iowa Senate with only Republican support. But after hearing from representatives of blood banks, hospitals, and individual healthcare experts during a legislative hearing Tuesday at the Iowa Capitol, Iowa Representative Stephen Bradley, a Republican from Cascade and the leader of the three-member legislative panel considering the bill, announced he does not support it and that it will not advance in the House, effectively killing it for the 2024 legislative session. Bradley noted in addition to the testimony he heard during Tuesday's hearing, he also heard from two more experts, his two nephews who are physicians. When I showed them this bill, they said we don't need this bill, Bradley said. The bill had been proposed by Senator Jeff Edler, a Republican from State Center, who said it was proposed after guidance issued by the Federal Food and Drug Administration related to direct blood donations. Edler characterized his proposal as a simple way to honor Iowans' individual health care choices. In October 2023, the FDA issued a warning against websites that offer the delivery of blood from individuals who had not been vaccinated for COVID-19 and said that seeking direct blood donations based on the donor's specific characteristics like vaccination status, sexual orientation, gender, or religion lacks scientific support. I will say that there are plenty of evidence-based reasons for why we don't do routine direct donations, said Representative Austin Baith, a Democrat from Des Moines who is on the legislative panel and is a physician. And then there's also just logistical reasons. To be able to manage all of a sudden a groundswell of people who want to have their blood now banked, the capacity to be able to store that, and then knowing that the shelf life of a unit of red blood cells is maximum 42 days. Tuesday's legislative hearing drew medical officials from both ends of the career spectrum to testify in opposition. Samuel Choice, a fourth-year medical student at the University of Iowa, and Bob Schreck, a hematologist with 40 years of experience as a physician and former director of a blood center. Choice said the proposal would have required physicians to violate their code of ethics, which calls for them to do no harm, because direct blood donations carry a higher risk of transmitting infectious diseases, according to the FDA. I appreciate that you are thinking about the autonomy of patients and the rights that they have, but I don't think this bill is actually doing right by them. You're asking doctors to be impelled by the government to give care that they know is demonstrably worse, Choice said during the public testimony period of the hearing. It's as if you were going in for a surgery and your patient said, I really don't want you to wash your hands before you do this surgery, Choice said. Why should a physician who knows that that's worse for you be impelled by the government to do something that would be worse for their patient and cause them severe harm? Other groups that testified against the proposal Tuesday included the American Red Cross, Iowa Medical Society, LifeServe Blood Center in Des Moines, 
and Impact Life Blood Banks, which has two locations in Cedar Rapids and one in Iowa City. Bradley Bath and Representative Tom Moore, a Republican from Griswold, all declined to advance the bill, Senate File 2369, essentially disqualifying it from further consideration this session. Here is our next story. Federal Appeals Court Upholds Iowa Law Banning School Mask Mandates by Caleb McCullough. A group of parents of students with disabilities lack legal standing to challenge a state law prohibiting mask mandates at public schools, a federal appeals court ruled on Tuesday. In a ruling written by Judge Ralph Erickson, the three-judge panel found that the parents did not show they had been or were likely to be injured by the state law. The ruling reversed a previous court injunction on the law and allowed it to take effect. The ruling is the latest decision in a three-year court battle over a 2021 law signed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. The law prohibits schools, cities, and counties from requiring masks during the COVID-19 pandemic. Reynolds applauded the ruling in a statement on Tuesday and defended the decision to ban school mask mandates. While children were the least vulnerable, they paid the highest price for COVID lockdowns and mandates, but Iowa was a different story, she said. Iowa was the first state to get students back in the classroom and we prohibited mask mandates in school, trusting parents to decide what was best for their children. Elected leaders should always trust the people they serve, and I promise I would do it again. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd said in a statement that the ruling was a win for parents' rights to make choices for their children. Freedom wins in today's court ruling to uphold Iowa's law banning mask mandates in school, Byrd said. Parents have the right to choose what health care decisions are best for their kids. The lawsuit was brought by the ARC of Iowa, an, an organization that works with people with disabilities. Doug Cunningham, the group's executive director, said that the threat of COVID-19 has substantially subsided since the lawsuit was filed. Still, he said the decision to accommodate students' health and safety should be left up to local school districts and area education agencies. The public schools of Iowa have a long history of educating those students, including people with disabilities, he said. And they really don't need government to step in and tell them how to do that. Cunningham said he does not expect the organization will appeal the decision further. Schools in Iowa have largely dropped mask mandates as the prevalence of COVID-19 has gone down. Cunningham said he was not aware of any students with disabilities in the state that currently were requesting a mask mandate as part of their accommodations. Appeals Court Overturns District Court Decision In September 2021, the ARC of Iowa, along with 11 parents of students with disabilities, sued Reynolds and school districts, alleging the law infringed on the rights of students with disabilities. The law was temporary, temporarily halted that month when a district court judge ruled that students with pre-existing medical conditions face an increased risk of severe illness or death without the widespread use of masks in school to prevent the spread of COVID-19. That injunction was partially overturned by an appeals court in 2022, but litigation was allowed to continue at the district court level. At the time, the appeals court noted that the circumstances around COVID-19 prevalence and vaccine availability had changed since the lawsuit was lodged. District Court Judge Robert Pratt ruled in November of 2022 that schools can impose mask mandates, in some cases, to comply with federal law. But in its decision Tuesday, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals dissolved that order and sent instructions to the district court to dismiss the lawsuit. Central to the lawsuit was the claim from parents that they or their children faced potential injuries from the prohibition of unmask requirements. Pointing to existing precedent, the appeals court said a person must suffer an injury that is traceable to the challenged law and is likely to be redressed by a court decision. 
The court said the anticipated risk of contracting COVID-19 was too speculative and to establish an injury. Here, because plaintiffs have only alleged the potential risk of severe illness should they contract COVID-19 contract COVID-19 at school, the risk of harm is too speculative to satisfy the injury in fact element, Erickson wrote. Here is the next story. Army plans to slash thousands of jobs. Cuts will mostly be for already empty posts. Written by Lolita C. Baldor. The Pentagon is pictured March 27, 2008 in Washington from an aerial view. The U.S. Army plans to slash the size of its force by about 24,000, almost 5%, and restructure to be better able to fight the next major war as the service struggles with recruiting shortfalls that made it impossible to bring in enough soldiers to fill all the jobs. The cuts will mainly be in already empty posts, not actual soldiers, including in jobs related to counterinsurgency that swelled during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars but are not needed as much today. About 3,000 of the cuts would come from Army Special Operations Forces. At the same time, however, the plan will add about 7,500 troops in other critical missions, including air defense and counter-drone units, and five new task forces around the world with enhanced cyber intelligence and long-range strike capabilities. According to an Army document, the service is significantly overstructured and there aren't enough soldiers to fill existing units. The cuts, it said, are spaces, not faces, and the Army will not be asking soldiers to leave the force. Instead, the decision reflects the reality that for years, the Army hasn't been able to fill thousands of empty posts. While the Army, as it's currently structured, can have up to 494,000 soldiers, the number of active duty soldiers right now is about 445,000. Under the new plan, the goal is to bring up enough troops over the next five years to reach a level of 470,000. The planned overhaul comes after two decades of war in Iraq and Afghanistan that forced the army to quickly and dramatically expand to fill the brigades sent to the battlefront. That included a massive counterinsurgency mission to battle al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and the Islamic State group. Over time, the military's focus shifted to great power competition from adversaries such as China and Russia and threats from Iran and North Korea. The war in Ukraine has shown the need for greater emphasis on air defense systems and high-tech abilities both to use and counter airborne and sea-based drones. According to the plan, the Army will cut about 10,000 spaces for engineers and similar jobs that were tied to counterinsurgency missions. An additional 2,700 cuts will come from units that don't deploy often and can be trimmed and 6,500 will come from various training and other posts. There also will be about 10,000 posts cut from cavalry squadrons, striker brigade combat teams, infantry brigade combat teams, and security force assistance brigades, which are used to train foreign forces. In the last fiscal year, which ended September 30th, the Navy, Army, and Air Force all failed to meet their recruitment goals, while the Marine Corps and the tiny Space Force met their targets. The Army brought in a bit more than 50,000 recruits, falling well short of the publicly stated stretch goal of 65,000. The previous fiscal year, the Army also missed its enlistment goal by 15,000. That year, the goal was 60,000. In response, the service launched a sweeping overhaul of its recruiting last fall to focus more on young people who have spent time in college or are hunting early, job hunting early in their careers. It is forming a new professional force of recruiters rather than relying on soldiers randomly assigned to the task. In discussing the changes at the time, Army Secretary Christine Warmuth 
acknowledged that the service hasn't been recruiting well for many more years than one would think from just looking at the headlines in the last 18 months. The service, she said, hasn't met its annual goal for new enlistment contracts since 2014. Here is our next story. President urges leaders to fund Ukraine, Israel. Biden and others want action to okay aid bill and avoid a shutdown. By the Associated Press. Congressional leaders emerged from an intense Oval Office meeting with President Joe Biden on Tuesday, speaking optimistically about the prospects for avoiding a partial government shutdown, but with new uncertainty about aid for Ukraine and Israel. Biden called the leaders to the White House in hopes of making progress against a legislative logjam on Capitol Hill that has major ramifications not just for the U.S., but for the world. Biden hosted House Speaker Mike Johnson, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell in the Oval Office along with Vice President Kamala Harris. McConnell voted for a $95 billion foreign aid bill this month that would aid Ukraine and Israel, replenish U.S. defense systems, and provide humanitarian assistance for Gaza and the West Bank, Ukraine, and other populations caught in conflict zones. The bill passed the Senate 70-29, but the Republican-led House has not acted on it, despite pleas from McConnell and others for action. Here is our next story. Officials, EU won't send troops. Zelensky meets with Saudi Arabian leader to push for peace plan by Lauren Cook, Karel Janik, and John Gambrell of the Associated Press. In the picture, Ukrainian President Vol- <clears throat> Zelensky Ukrainian President Zelensky meets Tuesday with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. They're standing side by side. European military heavyweights Germany and Poland affirmed Tuesday that they would not send troops to Ukraine after reports that some Western countries might consider doing so as the war with Russia enters its third year. The head of NATO also said the U.S.-led military alliance has no plans to send troops to Ukraine. The Kremlin, meanwhile, warned that a direct conflict between NATO and Russia would be inevitable if the alliance sends combat troops. In this case, we need to talk not about probability, but about the inevitability of conflict, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said. Moscow's warning came a day after French President Emmanuel Macron said that sending in Western ground troops should not be ruled out in the future after hosting a conference of top officials from more than 20 of Ukraine's Western backers. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz appeared to have a different view of what happened in Paris. He said participants agreed that there will be no ground troops, no soldiers on Ukrainian soil who are sent there by European states or NATO states. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg told the Associated Press that NATO allies are providing unprecedented support to Ukraine. We have done that since 2014 and stepped up after the full-scale invasion. But there are no plans for NATO combat troops on the ground in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in Saudi Arabia on Tuesday and met the kingdom's powerful crown prince to push for a peace plan and the return of prisoners of war from Russia. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman seeks to position himself as a potential mediator to end the war between Ukraine and Russia, even as Riyadh remains closely aligned with Russia on energy policies through the OPEC group of countries. The day before, the prince hosted Vyacheslav Volodin, the chairman of Russia's Duma, the lower house of its parliament, and a host of other Russian officials. Zelensky's Zelensky's trip came as Kiev's forces were slowly being pushed back in eastern Ukraine. 
Russia has gained the initiative due to its big advantage in troop numbers and weapon supplies, analysts say. Here is our next story. Ceasefire not imminent. Israel and Hamas cool optimism after Biden suggests deal is close. By Tia Goldenberg from Associated Press. Israel and Hamas on Tuesday played down chances of an imminent breakthrough in talks for a ceasefire in Gaza after U.S. President Joe Biden said Israel agreed to pause its offensive during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan if a deal is reached to release some hostages. The president's remarks came on the eve of the Michigan primary, where he faces pressure from the state's large Arab American population over his staunch support for Israel's offensive. Biden said he was briefed on the status of talks by his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, but said his comments reflected his optimism for a deal, not that all the remaining hurdles had been overcome. In the wake of Hamas's October 7th attack on southern Israel, Israel's air, sea, and ground campaign in Gaza has killed tens of thousands of people, obliterated large swaths of the urban landscape, and displaced 80% of the battered enclaves population. Israel's seal on the territory, which allows in only a trickle of food and other aid, has sparked alarm that a famine could be imminent, according to the United Nations. With UN truck deliveries of aid hampered by the lack of safe corridors, Egypt, Jordan, and the United Arab Emirates, Qatar and France conducted an airdrop of food, medical supplies, and other aid into Gaza on Tuesday. But alarm is growing over worsening hunger among Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians. The prospect of an Israeli invasion of Rafah has prompted global alarm over the fate of about 1.4 million civilians trapped there. Talks to pause the fighting have gained momentum recently and were underway Tuesday. Negotiators from the United States, Egypt, and Qatar have been working to broker a ceasefire that would see Hamas free some of the dozens of hostages it holds in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners, a six-week halt in fighting, and increase in aid deliveries to Gaza. Israeli officials said Biden's comments came as a surprise and were not made in in coordination with the country's leadership. The Israeli officials who spoke on condition of of anonymity said Israel wants a deal immediately, but that Hamas continues to push excessive demand. Hamas official Ahmad Abdel Hadi also indicated that optimism on a deal was premature. The resistance is not interested in giving up any of its demands, and what is proposed does not meet what it had requested, he told the Panarab TV channel Al Mayadeen. Here is our next story. Consumer confidence slips below predictions. Index of Americans' assessment grew for the three months prior, from the Associated Press. American consumers are feeling less confidence this month as concerns over a possible recession grew despite most recent data pointing to a healthy U.S. economy. The Conference Board, a business research group, said Tuesday its Consumer Confidence Index fell to 106.7 from a revised 110.9 in January. Analysts had predicted the index would remain steady from January to February. The decline in the index comes after three straight months of improvement. The index measures both Americans' assessment of current economic conditions and their outlook for the next six months. The index measuring Americans' short-term expectations for income, business, and the job market fell to 79.8 from 81.5 in January. Consumers' view of current conditions also retreated, falling to 147.2 from 154.9. 
Consumer spending accounts for about 70% of U.S. economic activity, so economists pay close attention to consumer behavior as they take measure of the broader economy. Overall, confidence is barely above the average from last year, which was 105.4, according to economist Stephen Stanley. Here is our next story. Key witness evasive in Georgia Trump case. A former law partner of Fulton County Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade was evasive on the witness stand Tuesday as lawyers pressed him on details about a romantic relationship between Wade and District Attorney Fannie Willis that has roiled to the 2020 Georgia election case against Donald Trump. Terrence Bradley, who also served for a time as Wade's divorce attorney, was expected to be a key witness for lawyers seeking to remove Willis from one of four criminal cases against the former president. But when they questioned him, Bradley repeatedly said he did not know or could not remember when Willis and Wade's relationship began. Defense lawyers appeared to grow increasingly frustrated with his lack of answers, with Trump's lawyer at one point essentially accusing Bradley of lying on the witness stand. Defense attorneys are seeking to undercut Willis and Wade's claims about when their romantic relationship began as they push to have the pair disqualified. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 28th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Kira from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. Here's our next story. BYU ends number 7 Jayhawks 19-game home win streak. In the picture, Kansas guard Elmarco Jackson shoots over BYU guard Richie Saunders during the first half of Tuesday's game in Lawrence, Kansas. Dallin Hall and Jackson Robinson scored 18 points apiece as BYU rallied from a 12-point deficit to beat 7th-ranked Kansas 76-68 on Tuesday night, ending the Jayhawks' 19-game home-winning streak. The Cougars took a big 66-63 lead when Noah Waterman drained a three-pointer with 2 minutes and 43 seconds left. Hunter Dickinson answered with a three for Kansas, but Robinson hit two free throws and Hall drained another three, sending BYU to a win in its first trip to storied Allen Fieldhouse since December 1971. Dickinson had 17 points and 11 rebounds to lead the Jayhawks, who were just 3 of 15 from three-point range and 19 for 31 at the foul line. Dejon Harris Jr. added 12 points, K.J. Adams Jr. scored 11, and Johnny Furphy finished with 10. BYU won despite heavy foul trouble in part by going 13 of 34 from behind the three-point arc. Already playing without Kevin McCullough Jr., who missed his fifth game with a bone bruise on his knee, the Jayhawks had a scare when Nick Timberlake landed hard after going up for a rebound. The thud echoed through Allen Fieldhouse, and Timberlake spent a couple of minutes in the locker room before eventually returning to the game. Foul trouble set in for BYU in the second half. Hall picked up his fourth with 17.39 to go, and Trevin Nell got his fourth after a double technical with Dickinson just minutes later. But the Jayhawks were unable to take advantage, not only struggling at the foul line, but going more than eight minutes without a field goal. BYU had another technical foul called on its bench with 7.50 left, and Harris made both of those free throws. That's when the Cougars suddenly began to rain three-pointers, wiping away a 56-50 deficit and taking their first lead at 59-58 on two free throws by Hall with 4.50 to play. 
Paul added two threes of his own over the next few minutes, including one from the top of the key, which gave the Big 12 newcomers a 71-66 lead with 131 remaining. The Cougars were able to hold on the rest of the way for another signature win in their first season in the Big 12. Here is our next story. The Oaks on Me. The picture is of a large oak tree in front of a small gray house. I know I am going out on a limb by saying this, but in our yard, everything happens in trees. The stately sentinels, mostly oaks, although the modest maple stands out front, serve as headquarters for birds that poop on our cars and squirrels that ravage the garden. The trees also have a nasty habit of being hit by lightning, dropping on power lines, and falling on neighbors' houses. So my wife, Sue, and I called an arbor care specialist who got to the root of the problem by taking down a couple of sickly specimens and pruning others so much that our property looked like a branch office. I love trees, especially maples, which is why I get all sappy about because they produce sweet, delicious syrup. But I am not so enamored of oaks, which supposedly are the strongest trees, but litter the yard with twigs if even the mildest breeze blows through. They also drop disgusting brown gunk that stains our vehicles, clogs the gutters, and leaves the yard looking like a herd of cattle fertilized it. And don't get me started with acorns, which the squirrels love, but which drive me, you guessed it, nuts. Still, the deciduous darlings wouldn't be so bad if they didn't topple over like drunken revelers. The first time it happened, on a dry, windless morning, I was upstairs in my office, working hard to avoid working, when I heard a tremendous crash. I looked out the window to see that a not-so-mighty oak on our side of the fence had fallen on the attached garage of the house next door. Fortunately, our neighbors are very nice people who said they wanted to get a new roof but couldn't afford one. Now our insurance company can pay for it, the guy said. Thanks, his wife added. You're very welcome, I replied. It was nothing. The next mishap occurred when one of two towering oaks in the backyard was hit by lightning. Sure enough, the top of the tree had been sheared off. We called the aforementioned Arbor Care Specialist, who came over with a crew that used a chainsaw on the fallen wood and gave a crew cut to the rest of the treetop, leaving it looking like curly of the Three Stooges. Logs littered the yard, so I loaded them into the car and drove, with Sue, to the dump. It was our 42nd wedding anniversary. Isn't it romantic, I cooed. My bride's gaze told me in no uncertain terms that I was a lumber jerk. A couple of years ago, the top of a neighbor's tree, an oak, naturally, collapsed onto power lines above our property. The electrical box on the back of our house was ripped off, the power went out, and the torn and tumbled treetop, which fell for no discernible reason aside from maybe ants or termites, but certainly not wind, lay in a heap next to the fence in our backyard. The neighbors, not the same ones whose roof was smashed by one of our trees, paid for half the cost charged by the arbor guy Arbor care guide to cut up and cart away the rotten wood. Insurance covered damage to the house. Most recently, a storm toppled the top of yet another oak in our backyard. Back came the tree crew to cut it up, take down the rest of the tree, fell the one that was hit by lightning, and prune dead branches from other trees, including the big oak in front of the house that provides plenty of shade in the summer but makes our lawn look like it was manicured with a flamethrower. The work was good not only for our house and property, but also for the trees themselves. Now the birds can't poop on our cars, said Sue, and it looks like the squirrels have been dispossessed. If they think they're coming back to drive me nuts with their acorns, I said, they're barking up the wrong tree. This is our next story. Processing the food options in an airport. I wish everyone could have the same airport experience we get each time we fly out of our hometown, population 8,000. 
Mind you, we only have two flights a day, and the plane only seats nine people, so the service we get is first class. Recently, when we arrived for our early morning flight, we got our usual friendly greeting from security agents. So, where are you headed today? After we checked in for our flight, which takes about one minute, the young lady behind the counter handed us paper boarding passes and invited us to help yourself to coffee and cookies on a small table a few steps away. This day, we flew flew through security and with the five other people on our flight, only to be informed that we would be delayed about a half hour. I suspect the pilot overslept. As we were released back into the waiting room, I casually remarked to one agent, I wish I hadn't tossed my coffee cup so soon. A few minutes later, he came over and handed me a cup and beamed, I made you an espresso. All this small town charm faded when we arrived at the Denver airport and scurried down the concourse for our connecting flight. That was when my dietitian brain came to attention. I'd just been reading a 2023 article in the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics on how the overconsumption of ultra-processed foods, handily abbreviated UPFs, is often the underpinning of unhealthy diets, and that these foods are a significant proportion of the calories we Americans eat. What are ultra-processed foods? Basically, they are the ones that bear little resemblance to their original state. And often during processing, nutrients are lost and often replaced with salt, sugar, and fat. To be clear, not all processed foods are ultra-processed, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In fact, any food that is washed, sliced, frozen, dried, or packaged, or changed in any way from its original state is considered processed. And there's often a big difference, according to nutrition experts, between minimally and ultra-processed foods. Some packaged foods are actually quite healthy. Frozen vegetables or canned fruit, for example, are processed at their peak freshness and ripeness to lock in nutritional quality. Added ingredients aren't all bad either. Spices add flavor and other ingredients help preserve the product from harmful organisms. And it would be fairly difficult to buy fresh meat, poultry, or blueberries if they weren't packaged. We do rely on heavily processed foods at times, though, such as when traveling through an airport. Heavily processed foods include sugar-laden snacks and beverages and convenience items. Here is our next story, now playing, reviews of movies showing in theaters or streaming online, from the Tribune News Service. Drive-Away Dolls. It's fascinating that Ethan Cohen and Trisha Cook, longtime filmmaking collaborators and spouses, and the creative team behind the queer exploitation flick Drive-Away Dolls, have repeatedly and lovingly described their new film as trashy in interviews. It's a way of nodding to influences like the Pope of Trash himself, John Waters, and titillating B-movie king Russ Meyer. Or perhaps it's a way to get ahead of and away from certain expectations tied to Cohen and his former filmmaking partner, his brother Joel. This ain't your daddy's no country for old men, after all. Drive-Away Dolls rather excitedly asserts a space that one could call a country for young lesbians if one were so inclined. The film itself is a queering of the 90s crime caper, the kind of sardonic, ironic, muscular, and oh-so-masculine film that the Coen brothers and their contemporaries popularized some three decades ago, birthing generations of film bros. The plot centers around an odd couple of friends, an amorous lesbian Lothario, Jamie, and a buttoned-up office worker, Marion, who decide to travel to Tallahassee, Florida, when Jamie catches too much heat for cheating on her cop ex, Suki. The friends opt opt for a cheap drive-away rental and are accidentally given a vehicle with a secret stash in the trunk, sparking a chase across the state lines involving a senatorial sex scandal. And though they've got two bumbling henchmen in pursuit, these gals, gal pal lives, 
These gal pals live, laugh, and lady love their way through every sapphic saloon south of the Mason-Dixon line. Dune Part 2. For starters, I can't believe director Denis Villeneuve Villeneuve pulled off the big scene in Dune Part 2 in which Timothy Chalamet learns to ride the world's largest pool noodle. True, the story of Dune offers some built-in possibilities for success with such a potentially ridiculous scene. This continuation of the 2021 Dune is the sandiest movie since Lawrence of Arabia. This means whirlwinds and sandstorms worthy of Frank Herbert's massive hunk of trippy science fiction lit, which in turn means lots of dramatic visual texture, all the better to disguise as well as complement the sequel's extraordinarily sophisticated blend of digital and practical design elements. Now, is Dune Part 2 my thing? Does the bloody fall of House of Atreides and the vengeful rise of Messiah in training Paul Atreides, played by Chalamet, the battle for domination over the spice harvesting business on the desert planet Arrakis, and the machinations of the Emperor of the Universe and his daughter Princess Irulan amount to a hill of beans. And what about the political and romantic alliance between Paul and Chaney, the fierce Freeman warrior fighting for her people? Chaney is once again played by Zendaya, who actually has things to do and say. Javier Bardem returns too, with an expanded presence as Freeman leader Stilgar, heading the revolt against the invading Harkonnen. With a different filmmaker, I'd say no, not my Space Jam. But director and co-writer Villeneuve uses the screen to imagine technological and otherworldly amazements and treat them matter-of-factly. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 28th, 2024. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Kira from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.
This is Tom Hatton with an Irish short take from the book A Culinary History of Iowa. And the first article we're going to read from the book is entitled Exploring Iowa. Located in the heart of America, Iowa is the land between two rivers, a region of the Midwest distinguished by a surprisingly rich, diverse cultural and culinary history. Between the forests of the eastern United States and the grasslands of the Great Plains to the west, Iowa's gently rolling landscape extends westward from the Mississippi River, which forms the state's entire eastern border. The Missouri River forms the western border, making Iowa the only U.S. state with two parallel rivers defining its borders. Rivers were the early highways, bringing explorers, trappers, traders, and settlers to the Iowa prairie. Centuries before the Europeans arrived, however, various Native American tribes, including the Sac, Fox, Sioux, Iowa, Nisquaki, and others, lived, hunted, and farmed across the region. The meaning of the name Iowa depends on who you ask. Traditionally, it has been described as an Iowa word, meaning the beautiful land. Although others say that Iowa itself is the French spelling of Ayuawa, a name meaning sleepy ones, a name given in jest to the Iowa tribe by the Dakota Sioux. Living off the land to find the food and farming traditions of the tribes like the Iowa, whose history is carefully recreated at Living History Farms in Urbandale. Iowa farmers raised corn, beans, melons, and squash. Women did the farming in the Iowa culture, while men were responsible for hunting and making tools. Iowa families were subsistence farmers, raising just enough for their family to survive throughout the year and having a little put away in case of a bad year. The Iowa had separate summer, winter, and traveling lodges. Bark houses called Nachachi kept the Iowa cool during hot summer months, while winter mat houses called Chakiruta, made from layers of sewn cattail leaves, protected the Iowa from harsh winters and stayed around 50 degrees inside. While traveling on hunting expeditions, the Iowa lived in a Chibothraji, or teepee, made from buffalo hides. Their villages also contained sweat lodges, food drying racks, cooking areas, work areas, hide scraping rocks, pottery pits, and gardens. At Living History Farms, historical interpreters at the 1700 Iowa farm discuss hunting, hide processing, fur trading, tool making, gardening, food processing, and the roles that Iowa men and women played in each. Interpreters used both recreated bone and stone tools and reproduced trade items to perform daily tasks. By the era of the 1700 Iowa farm depicted at Living History Farms, the first Europeans had seen the land that would become Iowa. Had history taken a different course centuries ago, Iowans might be known for their unique brand of French cuisine with a distinctly Midwestern flair. In the late 1600s, European explorers began paddling up and down the Mississippi River, passing along Iowa's eastern border. The first to visit Iowa were Frenchmen. Louis Joliet led a crew accompanied by Father Marquette, a Catholic priest. In 1673, the expedition arrived in the area that includes Pikes Peak State Park near the Iowa town of McGregor. It would be almost 150 years after Marquette and Joliet sailed along Iowa's eastern border before white settlers began moving inland to farm Iowa's incredibly rich topsoil. In the meantime, trappers and traders began exploring the rivers that fed into the mighty Mississippi. 
the French established some trading posts that would grow into Midwestern cities, including St. Paul, Minnesota, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, and St. Louis, Missouri. In the 1780s, a young Frenchman named Julien Dubuque learned that there were French there, there were rich deposits of lead ore on the west side of the Mississippi River near Prairie du Chien. Lead was valuable because it was used to make ammunition for guns and cannons. Dubuque lived among the Native Americans in the area and mined the ore. Dubuque set up lead mines near the location of the city that bears his name and lived in the area until he died in 1810. And that was an excerpt from A Culinary History of Iowa by Darcy Doherty, Malsey, and other offbeat stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Thorkelson. This is Tom Hatton with an Irish short take from the book A Culinary History of Iowa. An article we're reading now is entitled Manna Colonies Maintain Rich History in Iowa. The Icarians weren't the only communal society to play a role in Iowa's culinary history. The famous Manna Colonies in eastern Iowa were also founded on communal principles. But unlike the Icarians, the Amanas had a strong religious component. By the 1700s, people across northern Europe had become dissatisfied with the rituals and intellectualism of the Lutheran Church and had begun to rebel and separate from the Church. Adherents to a new faith called the Community of True Inspiration formed their own self-reliant communities. Known as the Inspirationists, these men and women and their families found refuge in central Germany. Persecution and an economic depression in Germany in the 1830s, however, forced the community to search for a new home. Hundreds of inspirationists immigrated to America in 1843-44 in search of religious freedom. They pooled their resources and established a community named Ebenezer near modern-day Buffalo, New York. All property was held in common. Farms and factories were established, and the community of nearly 1,200 people prospered. When more farmland was needed for the growing community, the inspirationists looked to Iowa where attractively priced land was available. A committee was sent to inspect land in Iowa in the mid-1850s. The Iowa River Valley proved particularly promising. Here, the men found acres of rich soil, good timber, water, limestone, sandstone, and clay necessary for establishing a new community. The leaders chose the name Amana, meaning Remain True, from Song of Solomon 4.8. Starting in 1855, six villages were established a mile or two apart, including Amana, East Amana, West Amana, South Amana, High Amana, and Middle Amana. The village of Homestead was added in 1861, giving the Amana colonies access to the railroad. Each village had its own school, farm, and craft industries to make it virtually self-sufficient. 
The communal way of life was continued in Amana, much like it had been in Ebenezer. All property was held in common. Families were assigned housing in buildings owned by the Amana Society. Each individual worked at a designated job. Religious life was the strong unifying factor. In the seven villages, residents received a home, medical care, meals, all household necessities, and schooling for their children. Property and resources were shared. Men and women were assigned jobs by the village council of brethren. No one received a wage. Farming and the production of wool and calico supported the community. But village enterprises, from clockmaking to brewing, were vital. Well-crafted products became a hallmark of the Amana colonies, which are still known for exceptional wines and more. People were called to work before dawn by the gentle tolling of the bell in the village tower in Old Amana, where the pace of life was much different than today. More than 50 communal kitchens provided three, meal, three daily meals as well as mid-morning and mid-afternoon snacks to all colonists. These kitchens were operated by the women of the Amana colonies and were well supplied by the village smokehouse, bakery, ice house, and dairy, as well as the orchards, vineyards, and huge communal gardens maintained by the villagers. During the growing season, there was plenty of work to do in the gardens and kitchens, from planting and harvesting to preparing and storing vegetables from cabbage to turnips. Around 1900, for example, it wasn't unusual for the communal kitchens in just one Amana village to produce more than 400 gallons of sauerkraut. It took a lot of food and labor to sustain the villages within the Amana colonies. Children attended school six days a week, year-round, until age 14. Boys were then assigned jobs on the farm or in the craft shops, while girls were assigned to a communal kitchen or garden. Work and faith were often intertwined and were intertwined in the villages, where the inspirationists attended worship services 11 times per week. Times were changing by the early 20th century, however. Improved communications and transportation in the 1920s began to exert their influence on the Amana colonies. In addition, the collapse of the American economy following the stock market crash of October 1929 left no aspect of daily life untouched. The Great Depression and disastrous farm economy made the isolated communal life in Amana socially and economically impossible. In the early 1930s, Amana set aside its communal way of life. A strong desire on the part of the residents to maintain their community finally propelled propelled the change, according to Amana history shared by the Amana Colonies Convention and Visitors Bureau. By 1932, the communal way of life was seen as a barrier to achieving individual goals. Rather than leave or watch their children leave the community, the people of the Amana villages changed. Members voted to abandon the communal system and established the Amana Society Incorporated, a profit-sharing corporation to manage the farmland, mills, and larger enterprises. Private enterprise was encouraged. While this separated the economic aspect of the community from the church, the Amana Church Society continued to be the religious foundation of the community. Today, the seven villages of the Amana colonies are among the state's most popular tourist attractions. Declared a National Historic Landmark in 1965, the Amana colonies attract hundreds of thousands of visitors annually who come to experience a place where the past is cherished and hospitality is a way of life. The streets of the Amana colonies, lined with their historic brick, stone, and clapboard houses, their 
flower and vegetable gardens and their lanterns and walkways recall the Amana of yesterday. Many museums are available for tours, including the communal kitchen in Middle Amana, preserved just as it was on the day in 1932 when the last communal meal was served in the colony. The communal kitchen lets you step back in time. Guides explain kitchen routines and share insights on communal life. Guests can also enjoy a satisfying taste of Amana history and hospitality at the famous Ox Yoke Inn, a full-service restaurant founded in 1940 in the village of Amana. The Ox Yoke Inn's nationally recognized reputation of fresh, quality food served family style reflects the restaurant's old-world signature dishes. The Ox Yoke Inn serves traditional German and American favorites at breakfast, lunch, and dinner as well as on Sunday brunch buffet. Glimpse of the, glimpses of the past are also preserved in some of the gardens in the Amana colonies. With the passing of the Old Order in 1932, the number of the society's large vegetable gardens and orchards dwindled, but Larry Reddick and his wife Wilma still grow some of the colony's heirloom varieties in their fourth-generation South Amana vegetable garden. In 1980, they founded a seed bank to preserve heirloom plants for the future generations. In his 2013 book, Gardening the Amana Way, Reddick's chapters on modern vegetable and flower gardening in today's Amana colonies showcase his cottage in the meadow gardens, now listed with the Smithsonian's Archives of American Gardens. Old intermingles with new across Reddick's gardens as heirloom lettuce keeps company with the latest cucumber variety. It's a living tribute to the unique history of Amana colonies and one of America's longest-lived communal societies. And that was an excerpt from A Culinary, culinary History of Iowa by Darcy Doherty, Malsey, and other offbeat stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Thorkelson. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, the Food and Drug Administration has announced two drug recalls this week. Sandoz is pulling all of its prescription ranitidine capsules because testing detected a suspected carcinogen called NDMA. Health authorities in Canada, much of Europe, and Taiwan have already issued recalls for Zantac and generic ranitidine. The FDA has not yet asked other U.S. distributors to pull their ranitidine products. Ranitidine is an H2 antagonist used to treat ulcers and acid reflux. In addition, Torrent Pharmaceuticals is recalling multiple lots of the blood pressure drug Losartan. This action is related to detection of the impurity NMBA. This nitrosamine compound is also a probable human carcinogen. Torrent has now recalled more than 300 lots of blood pressure medicines during the past year. Aspirin has been getting mixed reviews lately. Earlier this year, the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology said that low-dose aspirin should only be used by older people at high risk of strokes or heart attacks. Others, they said, would be more likely to be harmed. Now, though, researchers from Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center report that Patients with head and neck cancer have a better chance of survival if they take low-dose aspirin while undergoing treatment. 
An additional 8% of patients taking the 81 milligram daily dose were still alive five years after treatment compared to those not taking aspirin. A different study at Roswell Park compared aspirin versus no aspirin among 164 patients being treated for early-stage non-small cell lung cancer. The patients got precision radiation therapy. Two years after treatment, 57% of those taking low-dose aspirin were still alive compared to 48% of those who did not take the drug. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has also recommended that obstetricians consider recommending low-dose aspirin to patients at risk of preeclampsia. This complication of pregnancy can be extremely serious for both mother and baby. Women taking low-dose aspirin are 24% less likely to develop preeclampsia. Scientists suggest that the Puerto Rican culinary tradition of incorporating sofrito into many dishes might help explain a lower rate of breast cancer there. This condiment is made with onions, garlic, peppers, cilantro, and a related herb, racao. Epidemiologists found that Puerto Rican women who ate lots of garlic and onions, including sofrito, were 67% less likely to get breast cancer than those who never ate sofrito. The total intake of onions and garlic was important, not only the use of sofrito. The researchers point out that onions and garlic are rich in flavanols and sulfur-containing compounds that have anti-cancer activity. Despite lots of information about how to eat healthfully, Americans are still getting too much of their energy from low-quality carbohydrates. Nutrition scientists drew this conclusion from analyzing nutrition health and examination survey data from 1999 to 2016. Although the American diet got a little better over that time frame, the change was modest. Only 9% of calories in a typical American diet come from whole fruits and whole grains. About 42% comes from highly refined grains, added sugar, and starchy vegetables such as potatoes. The estimated healthy eating index went from 55.7 to 57.7. Although this change is statistically significant, it leaves plenty of room for improvement. Americans are often exhorted to walk on the sunny side or look for the silver lining. Can such a cheery attitude influence your health? A recent meta-analysis in JAMA Network Open suggests that optimistic individuals are less likely to suffer heart attacks, strokes, angina, and death from cardiovascular causes. The analysis included 15 studies with a total of more than 200,000 participants. A pessimistic attitude increased people's risk of cardiac problems. The authors suggest that health professionals might want to come up with interventions to reduce pessimism and promote optimism, especially in cardiac rehab programs. They express the hope that their study might stimulate research into the heart benefits of a sense of purpose or gratitude. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. 